Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, these days, it is not easy to get people to listen to a sermon. I've been doing this a little over, you know, 10, 12 years now. I'm serious, though. I mean, I'm not saying you. You're all here and attentive and on your best behavior, but getting people to show up, that's a whole different ball game. And I know that it can be tempting at times to get up and hit the bathroom during the sermon. I said, not here. I've never seen it here. In my last church, there was always, every single time that I preached, we had an 8 o'clock service and an 11 o'clock service. Somebody got up to go to the bathroom every single time the sermon started. It's hard. And then when you deal with younger folks sometimes, you see their eyes down looking at their devices in the middle of church, whether they're checking Instagram or the scores. Sunday morning is tough during football season. Thankfully, the Super Bowl is on much, much later in the day. An era has gone by, though, and this is what was fun to discover in my historical studies. It was equally as difficult to get people to pay attention in church. This is not a new and modern problem. I read something a while back about how even during Luther's sermons in Wittenberg, people would be sleeping, not surprising. Some people would be gambling in the church during the sermon. And people's dogs would be fighting in the church during the sermon. Now, dogs fighting in the church, can you even imagine this? Next time you're tempted to complain about kids making noise in church, imagine the idea that at least two different people had brought their dog to church, and then those two dogs got into a fight and were growling and wrestling around during the sermon. Can you imagine that? Especially when you consider that that wasn't a one-time thing. It was something that happened regularly. In fact, from what I've read... There were nine different times during his ministry in Wittenberg that Luther refused to preach in church anymore. He quit nine times, although he eventually came back. He said, if you people are not going to listen, I'm not going to preach. And so he had his colleague, Johannes Bugenhagen, do the preaching for a while. He just couldn't stand it. We have this idea that as pastors, as preachers, that what we're saying is important. And it's true. The word of God. What could be more important than that? I mean, there's a whole commandment dedicated to this. We should fear love God so that we do not despise preaching or his word, but hold it sacred, gladly hear and learn it. But the flesh is weak, and the devil constantly fights against us with distractions of all sorts of different variety. But Jesus gives a lesson on how to get people to listen to a sermon in our text from Luke chapter 6 today. And I wish it was a lesson that I myself could carry out, but unfortunately, I'm not Jesus. So Luke gives a little bit of information surrounding the setting of Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Plain. Now, if you found yourself thinking that it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, you would be right. And in my years of ministry, I've discovered that something good worth saying is probably worth saying again. And so he's preached similar sermons in all sorts of different places. So it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel, but also different. Just like the sermon that I preached last night is different than the one you're hearing this morning, even though they're essentially the same thing and the same point. So Luke says that Jesus went down on a level place 
with a great crowd of his disciples. And then also a great multitude of people from all over the place. From Judea and Jerusalem, further down south from where they were. But then also from Tyre and Sidon. The people had gathered far and wide, travel, gathered, had traveled far and wide to hear Jesus preach, but also to receive healing from him. And we can understand why. And if you didn't pick up on this right away at first, that's okay. But Tyre and Sidon are outside of Israel. These are Gentiles. These are not people who have any business going out of their way to listen to some Jewish rabbi teach. And yet they are. Word of Jesus has spread all over the place, even outside the confines of Israel. They aren't Jews. They're Gentiles. So this is a pretty big deal. So the question remains then, how do you get people to listen to a sermon? Jesus has the best method of all. Luke says that those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Well, if that doesn't attract people to come listen, I don't know what would. Captivating and compelling to behold. But I don't have that power. How do I use this as a prescriptive lesson? I don't have the power to heal you by you touching me, so I would ask, please don't touch me, especially while I'm preaching, right? That's, that's a joke. You can laugh there. But... If there was ever anyone who could hold audiences' attention, anyone who would earn their time behind the mic or in the pulpit, it was Jesus. If you think that exorcisms and healings are a good reason to listen to Jesus, I would argue that his resurrection is an even better reason to listen to him. If somebody rises from the dead, you listen to him, right? If you rose from the dead, I'd listen to what you had to say too. This is why we're here today. This is why we hang on every word of Jesus, not just because of the miracles he did in his ministry, but because he has demonstrated the fact that he is God by rising again from the dead. And so, on the plane, Jesus launches into this sermon in front of a huge crowd. He's looking at his disciples as he does so. It doesn't mean that it was only intended for them, but they were certainly meant to hear it. And in his preaching, Jesus turns everything that we think we know about the world upside down and backwards. He gives a totally unexpected view of what it means to be blessed and what it means to be cursed. Nobody wants to be poor or hungry or weeping or hated. We want to be rich Full, laughing, and popular. But Jesus flips it all over upside down and backwards. Everything that we think we know about blessing and curse is backward and upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Now, some translations of the Bible that have become popular in the last couple of decades use the word happy instead of blessed. Happy is just inadequate. Jesus is talking about much more than a mere emotional state of euphoria. Even what we think of as the word blessed falls short if we simply define this as to make happy, to confer prosperity or happiness upon, as the Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary does. 
Are we blessed? You bet. Are we happy? Sometimes, right? Now, some of you might know this about me. I love fast food. You might agree with me. You might find it disgusting. But somehow I've ended up becoming a total hybrid of an academic geek and also a savage caveman. Gary Burns might remember that when I visited here after you'd extended the call, he didn't judge me when I said I wanted to go to Arby's for dinner. And I knew at that moment that this was the place for me, a judgment-free zone. And I was nearly overjoyed. I love it. I love fast food. I love slow food. I like to eat, and it shows. But that fast food does not always love me back. Am I happy when chowing down on a roast beef sandwich with curly fries? You betcha. Once in a while, it's a great treat. But if I only ate fast food... As the documentary Supersize Me documents well, then there's trouble afoot. Happiness is often momentary. Joy in Christ is eternal. Blessedness is eternal. And wisdom knows the difference. So I don't eat Arby's for every meal. Maybe have it once a month. (laughs) God created us to enjoy intellectual, spiritual, and physical fulfillment. He created us to be perfect in every way, and yet sin has also corrupted every aspect of our lives. It is no wonder that we often feel unfulfilled or dissatisfied. We might try to find this missing fulfillment on our own, but in looking for it, we often travel down all the wrong roads. Satan entices us to think that physical pleasure or material possessions can make you happy. And if you're happy, then you'll have the fulfillment and the satisfaction that sin has taken away. Likewise, our own human nature leads us to think that the road called happiness leads to the ultimate solution to our every problem. But scripture tells us otherwise. Thank God that through the power of his saving gospel, he's put us on the right road. He has enlightened us by his spirit and he guides and leads us down the right road, the path directly through and with Jesus. This is what it means to be blessed. It means living under the care and love of our gracious heavenly father. It means having fulfillment and satisfaction in your life because you know that through Christ and his redeeming work, you are a precious child of God. To be blessed is to know that because of Christ, God will take care of you, provide for you, and love you forever. The benefits of happiness last only for a short time, but the benefits of being blessed last forever. If we try to do it all on our own, we fail. We might think that we're on the right road only to find out that it's yet another dead end. Only when our trust and faith are placed in Christ and we in turn receive his forgiveness for our sins, his gift of new life, only then does the Spirit place us on the right road, the road of blessedness that leads to eternal life in heaven. What Jesus is revealing in this sermon there on the plain is that everything we think we know about the good life is backwards. 
It's not Jesus' approach to happiness and blessedness that is backwards and upside down. It's ours. We think that we know, but we have no idea. And none of this is new. We think that we've invented being materialistic or greedy or trusting in possessions. But it's always been the case. In fact, even in Jesus' day, the majority of people inside Israel and out of it thought that wealth was a direct demonstration of God's love for a person. If you were poor, God loves you less. If you were rich, God loved you more. Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn didn't invent this stuff in the 20th century. It's always been the case. Job's friends wrestle with him in his struggle and his suffering, and they say, well, if God took all of this stuff away from you, it obviously is because you did something wrong. If you suffer, it's because of your sin. When in reality, we see that we often suffer because of our connection to Christ. When people hate you or revile you because of Christ, that's actually evidence that you're blessed. It might help us understand the need to look to God instead of relying on our own ability to find blessedness. If we think of the ostrich egg. Now, I don't think that there are ostriches around here because I don't see a lot of sand around here. But somebody on the road over there has got either llamas or alpacas, and I love driving by there. Do you know which one it is? See, in a lot of places, at least in Arizona, folks that have llamas or alpacas probably have ostriches and emus too, and they're just fascinating. But if we think about the ostrich egg for a moment, when the ostrich lays her egg, she carefully covers it with sand. Then she meticulously camouflages the location. She disguises it so that no one can harm the egg. The ostrich is so good at camouflaging her egg that if she moves her eye from the site just for a moment, she cannot find it again. Thus, the ostrich gives all of her attention to that egg's resting place, even if it means giving up her life. If she looks away at all, she loses everything. And so the symbol of the ostrich egg hangs in all sorts of Christian churches throughout the Middle East and has for centuries. Christians use this symbol as a way to help them focus completely upon God in their worship and let nothing distract them, even the threat of death. There's so many awful things that can draw our attention away from what's truly important. Like raccoons, we can so easily wander off toward any shiny thing that catches our eye. Perhaps this is where the pronouncement of woe from Jesus comes in handy for us. Woe to the rich, for you've received your consolation. Well, I would ask Jesus, in my flesh, who in the world wants to be poor? I've heard people say, being poor is not a sin, but it sure is inconvenient. Who wants to be poor? Is it sinful to have money in the bank, or at least enough to cover your bills? Is this what Jesus is getting at? By no means. But there is always a danger in having wealth, having stuff, because the danger is always that we'll trust it. There's always a possibility of getting so wrapped up in the things of this world that we miss what's truly important. And even this, 
I don't think is the entire point of what Jesus is preaching. Whether poor or rich in the context of Jesus' sermon has more to do with your minds than it does with your finances. When it comes to our standing before a righteous God, do we envision that we have plenty to cover our debt to him? Or are we standing before a holy God as beggars, like Luther said? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness in recognition that we have in enough ourselves enough? Do we recognize our spiritual poverty? Do we hunger and mourn and weep as a result of them? This sermon of Jesus serves as a warning to us. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn God's grace and favor. It is not up to us to set us in a right standing with our God. And if we're not in a right relationship with God, then all of our illusions of happiness and contentment in this life are nothing more than that. Illusions. We're fooling ourselves. The blessings that are pronounced by Jesus for the poor, hungry, weeping, and hated are not blessings, are, are blessings because of him, not because it is somehow noble to be helpless and hopeless. Jesus is not glorifying victimhood, but rather pointing us to trust in him alone. It is no more sinful to be wealthy than it is to be poor. But the difference is that the poor are often much more aware of their own inadequacies and their dependence upon outside help that is beyond their control. We are blessed because we recognize that it is God doing all the blessing. Notice the grammar here, right? We are blessed, present tense, because of what will happen, the future tense. The hungry will be satisfied, but they're blessed now. The weeping ones will laugh, but they're still blessed now. The reviled will rejoice in their reward, and they're blessed now. And the only variation in this pattern is the first one. We are blessed because the reign of God is with us. We are blessed because we have Jesus as our Lord. He reigns and rules over us with grace and favor. The reign of heaven has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who the Catechism says is my Lord. My Lord, who has redeemed me, the lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death, so that I may be his own. His reign is over us now, even if we don't always see it. We live in this tension between now and not yet. Because while all the promises of God to restore all things have come to us, in the ministry of Jesus and his kingly reign, in holy baptism, into his life, death, and resurrection, in the Lord's Supper, in absolution, in the preaching of the gospel, all of those things are now ours. But yet we do not enjoy them in the fullness we will someday. We get glimpses of these blessings in the present, but for now we live only in hopeful expectation. We live by promise, because the best is yet to come. The poet Robert Browning 
once wrote that a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Otherwise, what's a heaven for? When we recognize our poverty of spirit, our hunger for righteousness that we can never attain by our works, when we weep over our sin and the sinfulness of the broken world in which we live, and when we as Christians are reviled and hated by the world, it is then that we receive everything from God that we are lacking. If the world as it is today is all there is to life, why bother sticking around? That's the conclusion that some have come to. But thank God there is more to life than what you see. We rejoice that now through the lens of faith, the world appears to us to be upside down and backward. There's a deep burning desire in every single person who lives to find something to make sense of life and the world around us. Buddhists would argue that this is why human beings suffer, because we desire we desire things to be any other way than the way they are. If you, didn't think, if you didn't want something else, you would never suffer, they say. I don't agree. Holy Scripture reveals to us that not everything is as it appears. Because there is nothing that is so broken that it cannot be fixed. There is no one so lost that they cannot be found. And our present is indeed blessed. Because Jesus has come to reveal to us and to grant to us all the blessings of his upside down and backwards world. And he's done so through the blood of his cross and the glory and the joy of his empty tomb. You are blessed now and will be forevermore. Amen. And the peace of our God that surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you rise for prayer as you're able?